Welcome aboard and buckle up. You're now listening to Shift Happens with Jim Milloway. Now, let's dive in, go deep, share ideas, and take a good look at what we in the benefits industry can do to accelerate the shift to the member-first economy. And now, live from Zero Studios, your host, the more infamous than famous, Jim Milloway. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shift Happens. I'm Jim Milloway. This is a podcast that we take an in-depth look at what we in the benefits industry can do to accelerate the shift to what we recognize as the member-first economy, right? It takes an evolved mindset that uses modern approaches, customer delight, data analytics, and the best possible experience to shift this industry where we need to be. My name's Jim Milloway. I'm CEO at Zero, and I'll be the host today. I'm joined by one of my favorite people in this space, uh, Zach Holdsworth. Zach is the co-founder and CEO of Hint Health. Hint's focused on enabling, empowering provider-led solutions that drive transformation, improvements in cost, quality outcomes, patient and provider satisfaction. And I'm happy to say, even though we're virtual, this is the longest distance virtual uh, call I think I've done throughout all of the pandemic as Zach joins us in his native and COVID-free wonderful country of New Zealand. So Zach, welcome. How are you? Tell Thank everyone, you, Jim. Yeah. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself and then we'll start chatting. Yeah, well, I'm from New Zealand and that's where I'm at right now. I figured I'd try to um, escape COVID for a bit. Um, I, uh, you know, my background's in engineering um, and, you know, various different types of coding and things. Um, but eventually I, um, you know, I've always had a passion for trying to fix things. And eventually I came to the US, did my MBA um, and got sort of got into the venture slash startup world and um, actually ended up working at a company called Wellness FX, which is um, one of the first direct-to-consumer clinical, maybe the first direct-to-consumer cl- clinical diagnostics company. Um, but from there that I sort of really started to get interested in healthcare. Um, and and just started to realize just how fundamentally broken healthcare was and decided that um, after Wellness Effects, I wanted to try to you know, work on fixing US healthcare system, and that's what I'm doing now today at Hint. Perfect. I love it. So tell us, tell us a little bit about Hint. Yeah, so um, Hint is uh, focused on helping support the growth and success of the direct primary care movement. Um, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're a technology platform that powers, um, you know, a, a large number of the, the nation's direct primary care providers and direct primary care networks. Um, we're sort of the enrollment and eligibility and kind of billing infrastructure that these providers use to administer their plans and administer their businesses. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm happy to talk about vision, but that, that's sort of the, at a kind of foundational level, what we're doing. Well, that's great. So you made a comment, right, that stood out to me about uh, coming to, you know, learning healthcare here in a venture back world and understanding how fundamentally flawed everything is. And, and when we think about a system that's fundamentally flawed, you, you know, we've talked about it, you and I before, Let's talk about why, from your opinion, and one which I agree with, in a fundamentally flawed system, excuse me, why incremental improvements simply won't work and and why we've got to be thinking big here. 
Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at a system as complex as the US healthcare system, and frankly, just with the, with with the amount of um, you know int- you know interests in that complexity, um, the you know, when when you sort of try to change a complex system, you're, you're if you make small if you sort of try to fix one part of it, generally speaking, the rest of that complex system will. Um, well, I'm not doing a good job of explaining. But as a general rule of thumb, if something is very complex and you try to change one small part of it, the rest of the system is is going to adapt around that change and you're actually not going to end up with any change. Um, and so, you know, when I think about the US healthcare system, incremental improvement simply won't work. Um, it may be of a very long time horizon, but in order to change the system, you need to figure out what are the root cause problems, what are the fundamental problems, um, and you need to address those because, and from there, those changes will ripple downstream to, you know, to the broader system. Um, and you've got, you know, you've got all sorts of, yeah, anyway, so I'll, I'll pause there, but I just, I just don't think that incremental change is the answer in the US healthcare system. And that's what we've been seeing, frankly, for the last, you know, what you could say is last multiple decades that is what's been happening, as it's been incrementally moving, um, and in doing so, actually, you know, you could argue, sort of not not really getting where it needs to get to. Yeah, no, but I think it's a good point, right? And and you know, we're layering tech on just a fundamentally flawed system, right? Which doesn't work. And I think right. mm-hmm. if you go back a decade, right, and transparency tools were all the rage, right? So. Mm-hmm. A bunch of really bright engineers and a bunch of really bright investors sat around and said, yes, this is exactly what every average American worker wants to do is go to a website and compare 15 different choices of colonoscopies, right? And like it never happened, right? Because one, nobody wanted a shopping experience like that. Two, they they couldn't make determinations on quality, right? But it was but those transparency tools, which just never got any tra- traction, I think is a great example of like, you can't just layer tech on top of crap and expect it to change it, right? Because it wasn't changing anything about the delivery of care, the quality of care, uh, or, or or even the price, right? It was shining a bit of a light, I think, on price discrepancy, but that's about it. And so if, if we've seen all these repeated attempts, right? So siloed attempts or, or, or incremental attempts to change this huge system, right? When we talk about changing it at scale, right? I've long believed it, and, and certainly you do too. Tell us why primary care is essential to fixing it at scale. Yeah, I mean, and maybe just to reiterate the point you're making is that um, you know, price transparency is absolutely crucial um, in healthcare, and it's I think it's one of the reasons it is one of the fundamental kind of root cause problems. Um, but if you focus just on that element and you don't sort of consider all of the other um, kind of counter, you don't sort of consider the other issues with healthcare, then what you end up with is just kind of, um, you know, doing what we're doing, um, layering in complexity on top of the system um, without actually addressing the other root causes. Um, With One of the reasons I think primary care is so fundamental, and I think that... um, as, as a general rule of thumb, 
Well, for a start, we know that there's no functioning healthcare system in the in the world that doesn't have a functioning primary care system, right? So, so that you know, that that's a, um, I I think personally think it's a tragedy of the U.S. healthcare system that primary care has been kind of relegated somewhat to a back seat. It's been really perverted to a certain extent, but um, because primary care is the generally speaking the referral pathway to most you know to a large majority of downstream care. So the perverse incentives that exist in healthcare have sort of grappled that and figure out how to turn it into a, um, um, and basically figure out how to you know take advantage of that for profit. And over a long enough period of time, that's um, caused a major problem. Um, so I think that you know sort of restoring the love of medicine for providers restoring the for primary care doctors restoring the patient physician relationship between doctors which is where if you think about it the lowest cost of care can happen at primary care everything downstream that's more expensive so if you can do preventative things if you can actually um, uh, restore that kind of patient physician relationship you can um, you can really kind of impact the the um, the total cost of care and quality of the whole system. So from, from my perspective, kind of restoration of primary care is, is, is the foundational element of how we transform the U.S. healthcare system. Yeah, and I think you make a good point about how primary care has been relegated in this country, right? So a, a, a good mutual friend of ours, Dave Chase, right? Dave always... Mm-hmm. Yep, I just just stole a quote from him actually. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm gonna steal I'm gonna steal one from him too, right? So primary cares become the milk at the back of the store, right? So it's right. like you know everyone's got to go in the back to get the milk, but you're not gonna make any money on milk, right? But you know if you can if you can force them to the milk, you can sell them a whole bunch of crap they don't need, right? On their way to the milk and the way out of it. And you know what's astonishing, I think, is even though the system's fundamentally flawed, like it's it's pretty well designed depending on what side of the aisle you sit on, right? And, you know, right. I, I don't think employers and brokers sometimes have the insight uh, into how well the system actually performs around these perverse incentives. And so uh, my co-founder and our chief medical officer, Dr. Stan Schwartz, who I'm guessing is probably on this podcast, and he'll probably ask us a question, you know, Prior to him and I starting Zero, he was the medical director at a large clinic here based in Oklahoma that was owned by an even larger health system. So 350 some odd primary care physicians. And what nobody knew from the purchaser standpoint is when Stan left there, he had 63 full-time employees that were doing nothing but managing the referrals for the primary care docs, right? And Stan will tell you that system was well-designed to make sure that nobody ever escaped. And... You, you know, right. that, that that's another piece of that perverse incentive. But so let me ask you this. So we talked about and you and I have talked about it. We've, we've got three big obstacles. Right. So we've got price transparency. Right. We've got perverse incentives and, and, and the administrative burden. Right. Give us an idea in your perspective how big all those are. Yeah, I mean, so, so this is the way I yeah, the way I tend to think about it is the lack of price transparency, right? That That's a, I mean, I'm not sure how to quantify that again, because I sort of feel like they're all interlinked. Um, you've got the um, kind of the perverse incentives. And I think, I mean, 
the thing I think about with perverse incentives is that all of the parties in the system have perverse incentives. There's not sort of, what's interesting, it's not like, you know, the, the payers are the bad guys and the providers are the good guys, right? Or vice, you know, or it's just that everyone has got, um, over, you know, you've got the law of unintended consequences over multiple decades and everyone has, has ended up in a situation where their incentives are perverted. Um, and, and you see it sort of almost anywhere you look. And it's, uh, so that's a, a huge problem, obviously, um, for, just for obvious reasons. And then the third is this administrative overhead that has, um, uh, you know, Dave Chase calls it the, you know, uh, a, a, a Gordian knot, a root, basically a root Goldberg machine combined with the Gordian knot, which is basically an untieable knot, right? Um, and the administrative overhead alone is, um, you know, hundreds of billions, if not, you know, close to a trillion. You know, it's, it's, it's more money than you can kind of in your mind imagine, basically. And so the, the, what's interesting about these three things, though, is that in combination, um, you can't sort of unlock any single one of these things by themselves and expect the, the remainder of those three things to, to be fixed, right? They need to be addressed and it's almost in concert, which is really hard. It's a coordination problem. Um, so I'd say that the combination of those three things is, I mean, at the end of the day, it's causing, and you couple that with a dysfunctioning primary care system. And we're talking about, you know, more than a trillion dollars, you know, you could argue more than a trillion dollars of waste, right? right as a result of the, those fundamental issues. Um, and I'm not sure how I divide them up, I guess. Um, but I see them all as interlinked. I see them all as um, kind of equally important, <laughs> if that makes sense, in this in this problem we're trying to solve. And, and the work Hint is doing to empower these direct primary care positions, so I think direct primary care is unique in the sense that if we want to talk about price transparency, perverse incentives and administrative burden, it is a really effective job of addressing all of those at once, right? So this is an incremental improvement, right? This is 100% price transparency, right? Like I know what my subscription fee is for all the care I need or my family, right? Or for my employees mm -hmm. and their the year, right? There are no, just the subscription model alone that eliminates a significant number of the perverse incentives, right? Because there's not fee for mm -hmm. service, not getting paid for volume. Uh, Right. And then when you talk about administrative burden, like if, if I'm running a DPC, I don't need I, I don't need 10 billion people. I just need hint software. Right. To like make things happen. Right. That are going to happen anyway. Uh, and so tell us why you think in, and in your experience, and you probably talk to more direct primary care practices and physicians than anyone in the world. Right. Why is why is direct primary care, right, so far out ahead and what's so unique about what it's able to deliver? Yeah, I mean, I think you you nailed it in terms of kind of some of the key, you know, I mean, the, the, the part of the reason we decided to support direct primary care is because it was one of the only kind of working manifestations of these concepts that we were seeing that it was actually working. So as technologists, we want to support that. We're like, okay, if we can, and it also just had the benefit of also addressing and fixing primary care, right? You see, you know, um, so I think though that, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that I think has been unique about the direct primary care movement is it's one of the few things in healthcare that I think started as a movement, right? It started sort of a renegade movement where people are saying, you know what, we're sick of status quo, we're going to do something different. 
and that's hard, right? It's, it, it's taken a long time to get to where it, it's got to. It hasn't been, um, you know, I think it's been really sort of, rene- to a certain extent, renegade, renegade doctors, right, going out and saying, we're going to change things. Um, and it sort of maps a, a lot of the classic, um, so if you look at the innovators, you know, just, so disruptive innovations, typically the, you know, the, the, the classic curve of, kind of early adopters or really kind of early innovators that were stepping outside the norms and doing something completely different that actually seemed insane, right? I mean, to most people looking in from the outside, when we started Hint about seven years ago, my, a lot of my friends thought we were insane, basically, because I was coming from a venture community. And they were saying, there's 80 DPC doctors, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that the thing that's special about it is um, you know the thing that's special about it is that it is it is a sort of renegade movement. With, it's almost like there's no um, pre-existing uh, uh, there's no pre-existing baggage. There's no um, you know special interest groups that are sort of able to control that renegade group. And from there, it scaled and started to prove value. And so what we're starting to see now is this transition, I think, away from sort of early adopter kind of innovators into the mainstream to a certain extent, but they're pulling with them um, a lot of the kind of the, those early values and those early principles um, from, um, from the early days of the movement. And I think that, to me, that's what's special, right? It's, 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 not, ivory tower, it's not an ivory tower concept that we're going to design and, and sort of come up with in our head and then go to try to implement. It's something that was working at small scale and, um, and, is, and is now scaling, um, but, but retaining that core value of price transparency, incentive alignment, um, and very low to, to no administrative overhead. Um, and it has the benefit, added benefit of being in primary care, right, as well. And so it's in the sort of restoration of the love of medicine you get that for free as well, and the restoration of that patient-physician relationship. And to me, it sort of seems magic. <laughs> I, I personally think it's part of the solution to the U.S. healthcare crisis. Right, but had we had we not perverted it, perverted primary care in the first place, we never would have needed it, right? You, you know. Yes. <laughs> yep. so, which so we got a good question here from uh, someone listening in. So they said, Zach. Tell me what's different about primary care in New Zealand that makes it more functional than primary care in the U.S. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's funny. I'm from New Zealand up until about three weeks ago. I haven't been, lived in New Zealand for more than a decade, um, and so I'm not an ex. I will say I'm not an expert on the New Zealand healthcare system. But what I do know about it is uh, one of the things interesting about New Zealand is it tends to track the rest of the world by one or two decades in certain areas. And I think healthcare is one of those areas. Um, so you're, you're actually starting to see some of the early signs of a move towards more of a system a little bit like the US. Um, but the things that, at least my understanding of the things that work in New Zealand, one of the things to note is New Zealand is a much smaller kind of island nation. So, you know, New Zealand is... Um, you know, we're, we're, we've, we've eradicated COVID, but it's probably easier to eradicate COVID in New Zealand than it is in, uh, in the United States of America. Um, um, but, you know, the New Zealand healthcare system is about the size of the Bay Area, right, if you, if it's for, for comparison. Um, but one thing I will say is, is that 
you know, I went to have a primary care visit the other day, and it's essentially state-funded primary care. I mean, it's it's a you know, you could argue sort of essentially Medicare for all, um, uh, within at least in the context of primary care, and it was very easy to get an appointment. Um, I could get uh, in front of my doctor. We had a long t- spent a lot of time with that with with um, with the doctor. It was inexpensive, so there was there wasn't an access problem, um, and uh, and that doctor is our primary is our prime is now our primary sort of way of accessing the healthcare system, and is, is in in, the, in, the, in that journey with us. Um, I'd say more so than I've experienced at least outside the direct primary care movement within the US, more so than I've experienced um, in sort of the, the traditional um, the fee service kind of models that are more predominant. So yeah, uh, maybe I'll just say I'm not an expert, but I think some of the things I've noticed is just, um, at least so far, is just you know, great access to high quality preventative primary care where you're, where I have a very deep and kind of, at least I'm saying to form a very deep relationship with that primary care doctor. If you said direct primary care to someone in New Zealand, would they have ever heard that terminology? No, no. Yeah. And, and you, I could actually argue like in New Zealand, you know, the system's working pretty well. I'm not sure if I'd want to try to, you know, bring, um, you know, direct primary care into the system, right? It's it, it, it's 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 not the, it, it it doesn't seem to be broken in that way. Um, but no, people have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. But what's interesting is in the United States, a lot of people don't have know what I'm talking about. Oh right. right? Yeah. Either. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. You know, I think what William Gibson said, right, the future's here, it's just not evenly distributed. Uh, and so, right. so when we talk about that and we look at primary care and, 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 and I agree with you, right, this is the foundational piece, right? This is who, <coughs> whose incentives are best aligned with mine as a patient, right, with my family. They can, in a proper system, can be the steward of my care along with the cost of those things. When, how, What's what's been the impact COVID's had on direct primary care, and were those were those practices better positioned to survive a pandemic than the kind of legacy fee for service primary care? Yeah, yeah, and just super interesting. Um, you know, when COVID hit, I was, you know, I was worried. I mean, our business, our business is directly linked to the success of our customers. We we, we actually try to create the right incentives for us. You know, we make money when our clients make money, right? And they scale. Um, and so if our clients, you know, started to not do well, then that would directly impact us. So when COVID was starting to sort of take over, I was very nervous. What was very interesting about, and we were seeing, of course, like traditional fee-for-service groups, their revenues dropping, um, you know, anywhere from 30 to 70%, right? Um, in, a, in a time of need, the, um, you know, primary care, you know, Groups were laying off half the doctors and think, you know crazy stuff like that. We need doctors, um, and so um, one of the things we observed is our clients. It was almost as though nothing happened, right? From a membership growth perspective, if we looked at the data from this time last year, their member growth was um, uh, within, um, you know, essentially era error bands such that it was, you know, essentially the same as last time, this, this time last year. So their, their revenues continued, 
But what we, um, and, and so they were actually thriving to a certain extent. What we, anecdotally, what we heard is on the consumer side, the patients were, yes, they weren't visiting the doctors, but these providers were already set up for telemedicine, right? They were already set up for remote care. So they just pivoted into um, more telemedicine for their population. They didn't need to change anything about their underlying business model. And if you're an individual paying out of pocket, then this is the time where you most need care. So you're like, less likely to churn, right? Um, while in the insurance fee service model, then you get less reimbursements for, you know, at least at the time, less reimbursements for virtual visits. So you had massive impacts on their revenue base. Um, but on the, and on the employer side, we actually found that uh, our clients were growing because our clients were serving a, um, a critical function and helping those employers get back to work um, with, you know, COVID screenings and uh, back to work programs. So um, if anything, what we've found is our client, clients have actually grown and thrived through this movement, uh, through, the, through COVID. Um, and of course, our, our business has, has done quite well as, as a result of that as well. Um, yeah. Okay, so we got a question from Hogan Gardner who's listening in. So Hogan says, is, is the Hint Health database of patient history accessible by specialists who the DPC docs are referring the patients to? How do you tie that loop with the electronic medical record or is that by clinic by clinic? Um, hang on, I think. You might be able to Yeah, so that. one thing to note, uh, yeah. yeah, I think I understand the question. Um, you know, So a couple of things. I mean, with our with one thing to note is Hint is not a clinical platform. We're more of an administrative platform, so we're not in the clinical workflows. Um, however, what we are finding is that um, for a start, the the primary care doctors are serving as uh, often they will hold the patient's hand through their care journey. So if there's a specialist that needs access to data, they will be kind of there to provide it. Sometimes it's not, you know, clinically integrated. So, you know, that, that may be somewhat of a manual process. But generally speaking, our, um, what we see, the patterns we see is our doctors are sort of holding the hand of the patient through their care journey, whether it's referrals to specialists or if it's um, trying to understand what options they have in terms of paying for things downstream. Um, and the other thing we've seen is our customers have started to build out um, relationships with sort of cash pay uh, and price transparent um, downstream services that are that, that 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 are sort of less expensive than going through and paying a copay on your insurance and hitting on a, if you've got a high deductible plan, for example, you know it may be less expensive just to pay out of pocket than to um, you know, to, to get those labs or, um, or meds or imaging or whatever it is or specialist visits, but through paying through with cash. And so often our clients are actually building out these sort of narrow networks, if you will, locally around their, their practices. And uh, in those instances, again, they're maybe it's not integrated clinically, but they are integrating it on behalf of the patient, right? So the patient is not having to figure out and navigate this complex system by themselves. Um, you know, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but. Yeah, no. Okay. So I, I want to be, res I can keep talking for another 30 minutes, but I want to be respectful of time. So I've got my own question. 
So both literally and figuratively, you're the only person I know living in the future, right? So you're 17 hours ahead of me, right? I think, is it 1030 in the morning there? It is. It's 1030 in the morning. I'm actually in the, um, the city I'm in is actually the first city in the world to see the sun every day. Okay. And and the and the when the millennium came around, New Zealand Gisborne, where I'm I'm actually sitting right now, we had this big party from the first, you know, first to get into the new millennium. Okay. So you're 17 hours ahead of me in time, months ahead of me in time, in terms of COVID. So living in a post-COVID world, what's the greatest thing about post-COVID world? Because I don't even know what I'm going to be most excited about, and I still got six months at least to go. I'm guessing. What's the greatest thing about being in a world without that concern? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, with at least for New Zealand, um, it was managed so aggressively and quickly on the front end that I actually think for New Zealand, um, New Zealand is hurting economically. I won't. It, it's it's not it's, it's not having no impact on New Zealand. But what I've noticed is that, I mean, I go to a party or we have some people around for tea or something, and it's almost as though COVID didn't, it hasn't changed any of the really behaviors, it seems, in New Zealand. Um, And in a way, I sort of feel like that. I'm not sure if that's going to be the same thing for the rest of the world, right? After a year or two years of being in lockdown, essentially, um, I just, you know, I, I suspect that in the long term, over the long term, people get to sort of something more normal like what I'm experiencing here in New Zealand, which is just the ability to live life. Right. And that's honestly that's why I came back. I wanted to not have to, you know, try to decide if I should get a nanny because I'm worried my daughter and my pregnant wife will get COVID, right? Or, you know, try and decide if I should or shouldn't send my kids to daycare. That sort of constant kind of decision making that you need to do just around life goes away and you're just left with honestly it just feels it feels like I'm back to normal um, with my life right now and I think that's what you get, have to get to look forward to is just it's going to take a while to get there but eventually we will um, the, the world will figure this out and you know it just feels like it felt a year ago <laughs> that makes sense do people shake hands in the future they do I mean I, I was when I first got here I was people were coming up to me and hugging me and I actually like nearly hit someone, you know, by mistake. Cause I was like, what, what are you doing? Get off of me. But then I was like, hang on. No, they, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, people hug, people shake hands. We had a birthday party the other day and the, and the, the little boy, um, my little nephew blew all over the cake. <laughs> right. Um, which I was shocked by, I didn't eat the cake. I couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's great. And, and, and thanks for the look in the future. So I, I had fun. So we'll, for all, for everyone listening, right? So we're going to have employers on, on the podcast right now, listening, we're going to have brokers, advisors on here. Like when it comes to direct primary care, what's the best thing for people that do to, if, if they want to learn more about this, how do they go educate themselves? Yeah. So I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of different ways, um, uh, I think if you're a local employer, I mean, one of the things I recommend is go find a local direct primary care provider. If you're a large national employer and you're looking at kind of transforming your primary care using some type of advance or kind of direct primary care model, then um, then 
you know, come and talk to us or um, other folks in sort of our community, um, even for, even Jim, go chat with Jim, right? And we'll, we'll help educate you and point in the right direction. Um, but if you're a, if you're a small, smaller employer or broker that has local clients, my recommendation is to go hunt down the local providers and have them educate you because they're actually on the ground doing this. Uh, and that they're not necessarily um, going to be the most sophisticated at, say, sell, for example, selling you on why you should buy direct primary care, but they for sure are going to be able to show you why this is a much better experience for patients where they're able to show material ways that they can um, sh you know, save money right, through basic things, right? Really, just honestly, the basics. Um, and um, I would recommend, if, you know, coming to the Hint Summit, which is a, a little bit of a plug, but we uh, kind of host the largest direct primary care conference. Where can we go to learn about the summit? At Hint.com? Yeah, just um, summit.hint.com. And all the content from all of the last four or five years is all uploaded there, so you can kind of view it all. Um, and, you know, as part of our mission to help basically make prime, direct primary care the, the new standard in the U.S. healthcare system, we have kind of invested in this conference over the last four or five years. And it's since over that time has become the, you know, the leading direct primary care conference. Um, you know, um, and, it, and it's a great event. It's really fun. And we try to make it cross-functional, right? We, we try to bring doctors, brokers, employers, um, you know, we've got, uh, you know, all, all sorts of different people from different walks of life in healthcare that are interesting in kind of broad scale healthcare transformation um, are involved in that, that conference. Perfect. Well, thank you. So that's, yes, the summits.hint.com. We'll check that out, right? So summit.hint.com, everyone, if you want to learn more. I, I want to thank everyone for joining us, especially Zach, right? I hope this has been useful, helpful, informative, and fun. Uh, please hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. Same thing with Zach. Let us know what's on your mind. Uh, in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and get shift done. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Hey, see you, Zach. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed Flying Zero Studios on our destination to shift happens with Jim Milloway. Be sure to subscribe and review our podcast. And don't forget to join us for each and every episode as we accelerate the shift to the member-first economy.